Sometimes going to the grocery store can be chaotic. There doesn't seem to be enough time to check the list, make sure everything is there, search for the best prices, and take the time to make sure you get the best quality meat. So let ButcherBox help you out. Giving you peace of mind, ButcherBox delivers high-quality meat and seafood that you can trust straight to your door. No grocery carts required. Humanely raised, no antibiotics or hormones, 100% grass-fed, free-range, and crate-free, what more can you ask for? What about free shipping, customized box plans, exclusive member deals, recipe inspirations, tips, and tricks? You really can't go wrong with ButcherBox. Sign up at butcherbox.com slash morning cup and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breasts, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash morning cup and use code morning cup to choose your free for a year offer plus get $20 off your first order. Hey guys, I have a podcast that I think you'll really enjoy. Proof, the investigative true crime podcast co-hosted by Susan Simpson of Undisclosed and Jacinda Davis of Evil Lives Here is releasing its highly anticipated second season where they investigate the murder of 18-year-old Renee Ramos. The first season, which if you haven't listened to yet, you totally should, saw the release of two Georgia men serving life sentences for murdering their friend, Brian Bowling. And thanks to evidence unearthed by proof, on December 8th, 2022, both Daryl Lee Clark and Kane Joshua Story were finally freed after 25 years behind bars. With that same investigative drive, Susan and Jacinda are on the case again, and this time, they are on the streets of Manteca, California, to find out who really killed Renee Ramos. In proof, murder at the warehouse, you hear how, on June 5th, 2000, Renee's body was found buried beneath a pile of debris inside a new Home Depot building. And how, despite tips hinting at alternate suspects, her boyfriend, 18-year-old Jake Silva, and 33-year-old Ty Lopez were arrested and convicted of her murder. Fans of true crime and investigative series won't want to miss this riveting new season. Follow the case as Susan and Jacinda uncover long-overlooked evidence about what really happened to Renee, by listening to Proof, Murder at the Warehouse, wherever you get your podcasts. Are you looking for a new true crime podcast to add to your roster? Then you need to check out Into the Killing, a spinoff of the popular YouTube true crime channel, Criminally Listed. The Into the Killing podcast debuted in December of 2020, but the Criminally Listed team has been providing true crime goodness since 2016, with over 190 million views and 800,000 subscribers on their channel. Each episode of this stellar podcast, perfect for any fans of TV shows like Forensic Files and Cold Case Files, covers one or two cold cases that were eventually solved, some over the course of decades and all covered in detailed, straightforward examinations that provide answers and closure to its listeners. Dive into the different forensic technologies used to solve even the most complicated cases and hear about the history of forensic science that solved individual homicides, serial killings, mass murders, and rampage murders. Listen to episodes ranging from the murders of Linda Mann and Don Ashworth, the first time DNA was used to solve a police investigation, to the disappearance of Eaton Pats, the boy who first appeared on a milk carton, and the murder of nine-year-old May Leung, by an infamous serial killer. 
I promise you, you won't be disappointed. You can find Criminally Listed Presents Into the Killing on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere you listen to great podcasts. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. A scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Morning. Cup of murder... When you add alcohol to the bodies of some people, it can create a violence that no one should ever have to see. On March 24th, 1969, a man was born who, after a night of drinking, would make some decisions that would, that would cost not only one person their life, but the life of a second who just wanted to find her missing brother. So if you like your coffee hot, but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. On the afternoon of February 21st, 1992, three individuals, James Henderson Dellinger, Tommy Griffin, and Gary Wayne Sutton, born March 24th, 1969, were hanging out, drinking beers, and playing pool for several hours at a place called Howie's Hideaway in Maryville, Tennessee. At around 7 p.m., satisfied with their evening out, the three men left the bar and drove off in a dark blue Camaro with witnesses testifying that none of the men seemed hostile and nothing seemed amiss. However, this did not remain the case because just a few moments later, a couple traveling north on Alcoa Highway observed three men who appeared to be fighting in that same dark-colored Camaro that had now been pulled off to the side of the road. Two of the men were standing outside of the car, trying to forcibly remove the third from the back seat. Worried about the escalating situation, the couple used a portable radio to call over to the dispatcher for rural Metro Blount County ambulance and reported what they had just seen. Another driver traveling on that same road saw a shirtless and shoeless man stumbling around the side of the road near the Hunt Road exit. And when she passed the area about a half an hour later, saw two men standing outside a Camaro looking for something or someone. Something was clearly amiss. So when a 911 dispatcher in Blount County got a call at around 7.11 p.m., Officer Steve Brooks of the Alcoa Police Department was dispatched to assess the scene. Now, before he could arrive there, Officer Brooks was delayed by an unrelated traffic stop, but noticed a vehicle with flashing headlights while parked alongside Hunt Road. So he sent Officer Drew Roberts, his backup, to the scene. Once he arrived, he found two men standing next to a pickup truck. And sitting inside the bed was a shirtless man who identified himself as Tommy Griffin. Tommy explained to the officers that his friends, James Dellinger and Gary Sutton, who were not at the scene and were not initially named by Tommy, had put him out of the car, but would not go into further detail about the situation. So, doing the only thing he could, Officer Roberts arrested Tommy for public intoxication and booked him into the Blount County Jail at around 7.40 p.m. 45 minutes later, James Dellinger showed up and asked about Tommy's release, where he was advised to come back after his required minimum of four hours in detention at around 10.30 or 11.30 p.m. At 9 p.m., a resident of Bluff Heights Road, where Tommy and James lived, looked out his window and saw James's white pickup truck pull in and saw someone get into the passenger side. He saw the truck drive up the road and pull into James's driveway before noticing what looked like flames shooting out of Tommy's trailer just down the road. The call to 911 came just two minutes later, and when everything was extinguished, investigators deemed the fire intentional with the use of a combination of accelerant and an open flame. 
Upon hearing about the fire at her uncle's trailer, Tommy's niece, Jennifer, ran over to James's trailer to see if her uncle was okay. Answering the door was James's wife, who said that he wasn't home just as James and Gary were seen walking down the hall from the living room, their pants wet up to their knees. Jennifer asked them if Tommy was still in his burning trailer, and Gary told the terrified young girl that her uncle was safe in Blount County. She asked the men to accompany her to Tommy's trailer, and James responded by telling her that they were already in enough trouble. Something was clearly going on, and when Jennifer returned to her home and looked out the window, she saw James removing an object wrapped up in a sheet from his truck into his wife's Oldsmobile. An object that, in Jennifer's opinion, looked like the slender shape of a shotgun. Another relative saw the same transaction and saw the men leave in the Oldsmobile just after 10 p.m. At 11.25 p.m., the men returned to the county jail to pick up their friend, paid a cash bond, and waited in the lobby for the officers to retrieve Tommy. While sitting there waiting, one of the officers overheard them saying they needed to get him back to Sevier County. The next report to come in, though initially seen as unrelated, was at 11.55 p.m. when two people heard gunshots fired in an area of Blount County, called the Blue Hole. The following morning, Jennifer, still on edge about her uncle, looked over to see James removing the shotgun-shaped item from the back of his wife's car and placing it under his trailer. It was at this point that the family had enough and Connie Branham, Jennifer's mother and Tommy's sister, informed her daughter that she was going to Blount County to look for her brother. At around 2 p.m. on February 22nd, Connie went into a grocery store in Townsend and asked if anyone had seen her brother. Satisfied with their answers, Connie went back outside where she was seen speaking to two men in a white Dodge pickup truck. Later that afternoon, Connie, accompanied by both James Dellinger and Gary Sutton, walked into Howie's hideaway and told the bartender that she was looking for her brother Tommy. And she responded that she remembered not only Tommy, but James and Gary from the night before. It was James who spoke up next and asked the woman if she remembered who Tommy left with. But she said that her shift ended before the men were ready to call it a night. So they waited for the other bartender to clock in. And while they did so, the trio decided to pull up a seat and grab a couple beers in the meantime. When the shifts changed and a new bartender came in, James asked if she remembered them from the night before. She said she saw them playing pool that night and Connie chimed in and explained that she was looking for her brother Tommy, asking who he left with. It was at this point that the bartender gave a confused look because, as far as she knew, Tommy had left with the two men who were now sitting at the bar asking her questions. James chimed in again and asked her if she remembered them returning the night after bailing Tommy out of jail. But, as far as she knew, the three never came back that night and she worked until the doors were closed. After a few minutes of unsuccessfully trying to convince the bartender to join in on their search for Tommy Griffin, Gary looked at her stone-faced and asked her if she was married. Put off by the question, the woman responded in the positive. Gary's response? Well, your husband is going to be surprised whenever you're missing one morning, when he wakes up and you're missing. The trio left shortly thereafter, the bartender probably still reeling from the odd chain of events, and about a half an hour after their departure, a couple called in a fire that they could see near Clear Fork. The following morning, a woman watched as a white truck with two men inside left the woods near where the fire had started and headed towards the main road. Now, while all of this seems like small, oddly shaped pieces of a puzzle you aren't too sure belong to the same picture, something happened on the afternoon of February 24th that would make everything seem to fall into place. 
That is the day that the body of Tommy Griffin was found lying face down at Blue Hole, a shotgun wound to the back of his neck with a 12-gauge shell casing and beer cans scattered around his body. Forensics placed his time of death between the evening of February 21st and the morning of February 22nd, meaning he was already dead when his sister went on her crusade to try and find him. Four days later, it was her body that was found inside of her burned-up vehicle in the same area where the couple saw the fire on February 22nd. A fire that, according to experts, was set by human hands. Unfortunately, her body was so badly burned, it was impossible to determine her cause of death, but they did find a rifle shell inside of her burned-up car. The brother and sister were just 24 and 34 years old. While there doesn't seem to be a lot of information on the actual investigation, police were eventually led straight to the doors of both James Dellinger and Gary Sutton, where they found both the shotgun and the rifle that matched the shells found at the scenes at James's trailer. Both men were found guilty in two separate trials for each of their victims. And during the penalty phase for the murder of Tommy Griffin, it was made known that the men had already been convicted of the first-degree premeditated murder of Connie Branham, for which they had received life imprisonment in 1993. During the trial, the defense presented evidence that James Dellinger was raised in a home with eight other children, was poor, never learned to read or write, was a good employee until a back injury knocked him off course in 1990, had two different marriages, four children, and two stepchildren, watched two of those children tragically die at the age of eight and 15 months, had an IQ of somewhere between 72 and 83, was religious, nonviolent, and a kind-hearted man who helped to prevent a fellow prisoner from taking his life. When it comes to Gary Sutton, the defense stated how his parents divorced when he was very young, he was forced to drop out of school in the eighth grade, was a generous man, a family man who helped out his sister-in-law and her son when she had surgery, saved his niece's life by rescuing her from a fire, was a good employee, a well-behaved prisoner, an artist, a man with a low IQ and a number of limitations, and who self-medicated his depressive and mixed personality disorder with alcohol and drugs. The defense opined that both men would do well with a structured prison environment, but finding a number of aggravating circumstances and that both men were previously convicted felons, the jury returned with a guilty verdict and, by 1996, both men were sentenced to death. A sentence that James Dellinger attempted to appeal but was rejected in 2007. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to hear what terrible thing happened on March 25th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.